I'm glad it's a very well-known hymn. <laughs> and what a wonderful theme, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit today as we um, consider the psalm before us. You see, one of the most exhilarating aspects of the Christian life is the dynamic of answered prayer. Do you find that in your own personal experience? That it's uh, potentially one of the most exhilarating things in your life? You see, there's a, a direct cause and effect relationship that seems to exist between the prayers that we offer and the answers that are given from heaven. And it takes a, a life of faith with the anticipation that, that God will always answer prayer according to his perfect will. I want to emphasize that again. God will always answer prayer. Always answer prayer according to his perfect will. It may not be the answer that you require or desire, but it will always be according to his perfect will will. Faith believes that God will act in his perfect way. You see, we can't divorce ourselves from the fact that the scriptures consistently command us as, as believers to pray. It says we should pray without ceasing. It says we should let our requests be known to God. And this is of great comfort and joy that the God of this universe, the, the creator of all things, seen and unseen, hears you and answers you. And this morning we're going to look at a psalm that, that just gives us a glimpse of a, a type of prayer that we can pray. It's one of David's psalms. As you're aware, the Psalms are a collection of prayers and songs of praise, of poems, and uh, it's a collection that spans over about 1,500 years. The earliest Psalm, Psalm 90, was written by Moses. The last Psalm, Psalm 137, was written by the, the captives on the, on the shores of the river of Babylon. And it's a collection, and it was designed for worship. The Psalms are designed for worship. These, this was the, the songbook, the iPad for the Second Temple. And the particular psalm we will look at today is Psalm 28. And the psalm is a, really a petition. It's David crying out to God. And in all types of psalms of petition, we, we have a, a standard type of formula. So as you read Psalm 28, I want you to get these types of things in your mind. Firstly, in the petition, there, there is somebody addressed. And in David's case, and in all our cases, when we petition God, we're addressing God. And the petition is normally accompanied by either a lament or a a complaint. You know, the psalmist might be either close to death or his enemies are pressing in upon him and he cries out to God. 
in many ways, the psalmist may feel that God is absent from his circumstance. And we get this deep sense as we read through many of the psalms, many of the prayers of the Old Testament, that, that the psalmist may consider that God is just not there. And yet faithfully, in faith, he, he anticipates God will answer his prayer and his perfect will will be done. Because most of the petition-type psalms, these petitions of prayers, you see a real in-depth confidence from the psalmist. A confidence based on God's sublime attributes. A confidence based on the fact that God is all-knowing, He is all-loving, He is everywhere, He is omniscient, He is omnipresent, He is all-powerful. That's the certainty that as we read these psalms, we we get a a real glimpse at the character of God and His attributes, His majesty, His glory, His saving power, His attentive ear, His nearness, His grace, His love, His mercy. So a petition-type psalm, we we have an address to God, we have a lament or complaint, we have the psalm based on the fact that God's sublime attributes are in action. And that's why the psalmist calls out. And generally, within this petition, you have the psalmist crying out to God to be saved. Or maybe even to punish an enemy. But in all these psalms and, and prayers of petition, they, they conclude with an outpouring of thanks. An outpouring of praise for, for God acting in his perfect will. And that's what we'll see today as we look at Psalm 28. I don't know about you, but it's often when I'm overwhelmed by my circumstances that that's when I'm most likely to cry out to God. Yeah, see, for the rest of the time, my own self-sufficiency or uh, my own rationale or, or reasoning, I'll try and figure things out. See, it's often when we're in this desperate state, when we're in danger, when our circumstances are so overwhelmingly beyond our own ability to change, that's when it's most likely we cry out to God. I think we learn from the Psalms that that is not a healthy response. From the Psalms, we, we should be so in tune with God that we should never cease to pray. There should always be praise on our lips or a petition upon our hearts or we should always understand that God is who he is and, and we are to communicate with him. You see, I think this is a really personal trait that we only tend to call out upon God when our circumstances are beyond our control. 
Goodness, you even hear unbelievers do it, don't you? You even hear unbelievers who are in a state of, of uh, peril or who are, are completely surrounded by a circumstance that the only response is to call out to God. I would think even the hardest of atheists at some time in their lives have called out to God in desperation because each person, the Bible tells us, has a God consciousness. An inbuilt consciousness. We are, we, are, we are created in the image of God. We are part of the Imago Dei, part of the image of God, the image bearers of God, even though our image now is incredibly marred because of sin. But deep-seated Romans talks about it, the fact that every person has a God consciousness. And I think that's why in our desperation we do call we do call out to God. See, I contend that as we read through the Psalms, you know, each, each uh, 150 Psalms are made up into five books. You'll see that, Psalm 1, 1 to 41 is book 1 and so forth and so forth. You'll, you'll see that in your Bibles. And This particular section, book 1, Psalm 1 to Psalm 41 is loaded with Davidic psalms. And it's, you see as you, you look through these that, that um, David doesn't cry in desperation. He prays because it's a priority. And I want that to be a sort of a guiding light today. Do you pray because it's a priority or do you just pray in desperation? God hears both. But is prayer a priority? Let's um, read Psalm 28 together. It's a short psalm, nine verses. We're not sure about the circumstances around the psalm. We can't, we can't tag it to a particular life event of David. But I'd make this uh, observation that it's a reflective psalm about many of David's life events. And we'll look at one of those today as we unpack the psalm, but it by no means means it was written at that time. I think many of the psalms are like that, that David just reflects on his, his life and, and he gives us a glimpse into the heart of a man who loves God. So let's read it together. Psalm 28 of David. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me, lest it be, your, be silent to me. I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength 
my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I will give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and bear or carry them forever. It's a very simple psalm to to break up. Very simple psalm to understand. You you have in the, the first two verses... David's plea. See the the emphasis. He says, hear me. I call. Do not be silent. Hear the voice of my plea. I cry to you. These are things that, that we see from a man who knows his God. From a man who knows his God. The Lord is his security. We see that right of these pleas. He says, don't turn a deaf ear to me. Because in his view, in the way he thinks, if, if God was silent, giving uh, the appearance that he did not hear his urgent pleas, then David himself says, well, that would make me like someone who is dead. Second part of verse 1. So if you're silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. It's a metaphor for death, going down to the pit. You see, in David's thinking and in his reasoning, if, if God failed to answer him, his life would be no different to an unbeliever. Because unbelievers live and die without any divine deliverance. And that's not David's experience as we see as we go through the psalm. So he implores and he, he pleads to God. He calls. I think verse 2 is really pertinent because it's repeated down in verse 6. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's the basis of his prayer and his petition. The basis of his prayer and his petition, please note, is not his circumstances. It's the character of God. He's basing his prayer on what he knows about God. You are a merciful God. You are a gracious God. And and David pours out, hear my voice and my plea for mercy. Your mercy, Lord. I need your mercy in this circumstance. You see, any act of God, any act by God, on behalf of his people is a pure act of mercy. Any act by God on behalf of his people, on behalf of those who love him, is a pure act of mercy and grace. And David understood that in his plea. And furthermore, David's Dependence of God is symbolized in a really natural way. You, you read it in verse 2. He lifts his hands, indicating that he is, he is reaching toward the most holy place. I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Now for David, the, the, the sanctuary the, the, was the tabernacle. 
And within the center of the tabernacle was housed the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the very symbol of God's presence. The very symbol of his presence. And that's, in his desperation, is what he's seeking. I need your help, God. I need your presence over my situation. I need you to understand and to answer. And this is a healthy petition. It's a healthy petition petition because David knows who his God is. So what is the petition? We read that in verse 3 to 5. I think we could break it up into two points here. I think David is really asking for two things. He's asking for protection and preservation of the innocent. For protection and the preservation of the innocent. That's the first thing he asks for. And the second thing he asks for is for justice He wants the impure punished. So protection for the innocent, and he wants the punishment of the impure. He wants God's righteous judgment to be the standard by which people are judged. So you read through verses 3 to 5. It's it's incredible. You can see it. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. And then he explains what that looks like. And this is so pertinent for today. He he aligns the evil in this way. He says, The evil are like those who speak peace with their neighbours while evil is in their hearts. So they're, by the world's standard, peacemakers. They will have a good relationship with one another, but evil is in their hearts. Why is evil in their hearts? Because they do not acknowledge God. They have no regard for the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. Verse 5 gives us the answer. That is what is important. God looks at the heart. David is, is crying out. He says, I see this hypocrisy and I, I see this with these wicked acts. They're, they're nice to me on one hand and yet on the other hand they want to tear down my Lord. They're very nice one-on-one, but, but they hate the things of God. They have an appearance of outward godliness, but they harbor malice in their heart. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because David doesn't plead for vengeance. He pleads for justice. He pleads for divine justice. He asked the Lord to repay them for their deeds. Verses 4 and 5. It's a sober part of the psalm. How many of you pray this type of thing for your neighbours? <laughs> that God's name will be proclaimed and honoured. And that his divine justice may fall upon those who do not honor him. 
In effect, David is crying out, God, bring upon them what they deserve because they don't honour you. Their works are vile. They say show no regard for the Lord. And it's a it's a moving thing. Now as I thought through this psalm, I thought, okay. Even though it's a reflection by David and it could have happened at any point in his life, what is one of the stories that we could use to to apply this type of cry of prayer on David's behalf. And so as you do, you, you start thinking through First and Second Samuel and you look at David's life and you think, what is the one story that might just pull this together for us? So I go for the most famous story of all. What's the most famous story about David? David and the Goliath. The most famous story. We've all heard David and Goliath from a, uh, as small children. We understand the, the main tenet of the story. But I want to look at it a little bit differently today for you as we reflect on Psalm 28. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. I'm just going to dialogue a bit about about this in light of Psalm 28, in, in light of David's call, in light of David's petition to, to deal with my enemies. We know the story of David and Goliath. We know that the armies of Israel are fighting the Philistines. And the Philistines have a champion. They have a huge man. Nine feet tall, laden with very heavy armour. And he's, throwing, he's been cursing and swearing for about 40 days. And he keeps on throwing challenges out to the, the army of Israel. Keeps throwing challenges out. Um, and he says, well, send someone to fight me and, and we'll, we'll just decide this between ourselves and whoever wins will be the victor. So... We'll read this story because David comes into the scene. Now, David's a shepherd boy. David's been tending his father's sheep. Prior to this point, actually, Samuel has already anointed him as the future king of Israel. But sitting on the throne at the moment is a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul is a, a twisted individual, actually, I think. He, he, he goes from one extreme to the other, from honoring God to dishonoring God. And he, he, he wavers in the wind by popular demand. That's Saul. So David has been asked by his father, Jesse, to rock up and, and help his brothers. Some of his brothers are fighting in battle there. Take some food to them. A good thing to do. So let's, um, let's pick up the story in uh, 1 Samuel 17 and we'll read from about um, verse 24 and just make some comment here. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. This is the Israelites when they were confronted by Goliath, bowing across the, the valley, saying, send someone to fight. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? And they're talking to David. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. 
And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So no tax and you get my daughter. That's the prize. Okay, so um, men of the church, if you've got daughters, you you can start using this as part of your dowry payment. You You pay my tax and um, (laughs) I'll give you my daughter. So no tax and... uh, No tax and my daughter is the prize. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done? We've we've seen what is done. But listen to David. Listen to the the voice of David's faith. What shall be done for the man who kills a Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? Circle the word defy, that he should defy the armies of the living God. Verse 25, you already had that, right? You had, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. You see, what David does in verse 26 here is he brings a whole new worldview onto the situation. And he does it by asking a godly question. Who is this Philistine who's defying the armies of the living God? You see, the Israelites for 40 days weren't having much thought about God. They were trembling in their boots. They didn't want to engage in the fight. The shepherd boy comes up and says, What is this man who defies God? defies the armies of the God. If you're defying Israel, you're defying God. That's his tenet. You see, David's thinking is what we call theocentric. He's thinking about God in every circumstance. You know, so I sort of wonder. Sometimes it's a tragedy, isn't it? Treasury be if people were to hear our thoughts and hear our words within our circumstances. And then they'd never guess that we had a living God. People could hear our thoughts. Hear our words within our circumstances, and they could never guess that we worshipped the living God. That's what was happening to the army of Israel. But we see David's view of God and what he will do right at the start of this conflict. We see it in Psalm 28. Lord, Let your justice reign. Don't ask me to retaliate, but let your justice reign. Let's move on to the story of David and Goliath. Verse 34 to 37. After he gets a tongue lashing from his older brother, I think that happens often by older brothers, he gets a tongue lashing from Eliab, he says, why do you come down here? What are you doing? You just want to see the battle. You've got malintent in your heart. I love David's response. What have I done now? 
So he says in verse, um, where is it? Verse 29. What have I done now, my brother? And then he got, and he comes down to this point where he, he, he requests a meeting with Saul. Verse 34. And David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I just love this language. Catching a lion by its beard, a beard or a bear by its bear, beard and I struck and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. This is the vitality of a living faith. We saw the voice of faith where we say, how dare he defy the living God of Israel? And now we see David's vital faith based on his previous circumstances, based on the fact that he had triumphed over lion and bear. He has great confidence and he, he looks at Saul and he says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears uh, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That is a faith on fire. It's a faith on fire. The bottom line for David is God had delivered him in the past from the bear and the lion. Therefore, God will be true to his character and deliver him again. This shows this living and vital faith. Folks, God has freed you from the power of sin. Live in the freedom of that. And live for him. You see, David here ascribes no luck or skill or audacity to his previous deliverance. He acknowledges fairly and squarely who had delivered him. It was Yahweh. He has delivered him. See, looking back in faith enables him to look forward in faith. If you're struggling in your Christian life, folks, look back in faith. Look back to the time that you were saved. Look back to the time where God has cared for you, where he has provided you strength, where he has comforted you. And use that to push forward in faith. You see, David knew he would not be delivered because of his true grit, but because he knows the true God. For David, the circumstance had varied, whether it was in the sheep field against the lion and the bear, or whether in the valley against the Philistine. He knew God was the same. He rested his faith on the fact that God was the same, whether among the sheep or in front of the Philistine. So no wonder in Psalm 28, he, he just ex extrudes confidence in his prayer. He cries, hear my voice, my pleas for mercy. And he says, give them according to their work. For you and I, it's the same, folks. 
Romans 8 tells us that when we pray, the Spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit, groans on our behalf with utterances and groans that we cannot even imagine. That's God's love and action for the believer. And finally, in the David and Goliath story, we have the victory of faith. Let's look at David's speech just briefly as he confronts the Philistine. Actually, I just want to go back a little bit. Verse 41 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Look at the way the writer has given us this picture. And the Philistine moved forward, verse 41. And when the Philistine took and saw David, verse 42. And the Philistine said to David, verse 43. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give you flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now I love the contrast, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, of the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give you the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know, all the armies that are watching on, both Philistine and Jews, may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give it into our hand. This is the victory of faith, folks. You see, right through this story and through this chapter, briefly, we, we see the theme of weakness has been developed. All the important people prior to this point in time, all the important people regard David as weak. Eliab, his brother, tells him, you're a pain. What are you doing here? Saul doubts his maturity and says, look, you're immature in the things of war. And Goliath sneers at this puny man coming at him with a staff. But he's the one that God uses to deliver his people. David doesn't have the right equipment for war. He lays aside Saul's armor and sword. He doesn't want to be a little Goliath, you know. I reckon he didn't put that armor on because he just didn't want to be a puny Goliath. Why? Because he wants to demonstrate that God brings deliverance without the symbols of man's strength. He wants to show the people that I've got these five stones and that's enough. Because it's the Lord's victory, it's not mine. You know, there's lots of writings about how fast the stone was going and where it hit him, etc. Forget all that. Sure, okay, the stone might have been travelling 120 miles an hour and hit him a smack in the temple. That's not the issue. The issue, the Lord was provide the victory. Sometimes we forget that. The Lord will provide the victory. What matters is not what you have. Is not what matters is not that you have the best weapons. What matters is that you have the real God. That's what matters, folks. 
The fact is that your inadequacy and my inadequacy may be precisely your qualification for serving God. For his strength shines most brightly in our weakness. And we see that right throughout the New Testament. See, the primary purpose and theme of David and Goliath's story is the honour of God's name. How dare you defy? Well, I'm going to put it right. His name is not going to be defied because he is going to be the saviour of this fight. God's name, his reputation, his glory, that's the purpose of the story. The focus is not on David's courage. It's not on killing the Goliaths in your life. It's not on having the five stones of anxiety, depression, whatever other thing it is. That's not the issue. The focus in lesson here is clearly here is on God's adequacy in David's weakness. That is the point. And so what motivated David? The fact that God's name was being defiled. God's name was at stake and, and this mattered to David in such a way, so much so that he was willing to risk his life for it. Can you say that's your vision? Is that your point of view? Is it theocentric in nature? See, so then what are the situations in our world where we can clearly see God's honour at stake? So let's put it down to here in Canterbury Gardens in 2018. You see, these questions that we ask may not often be answered by the great breathtaking battle scenes like we see between Israel and the Philistines. See, more often than not, these great things may be answered when perhaps I'm in my pastor's office and I'm counselling a couple and I've come to the conclusion that, hey, I can't perform your marriage ceremony. So I see it's wrong for me to unite a professing Christian with an unbeliever. That may be for me where the rubber hits the road. And the fallout might be one of anger. The couple are likely to leave the church. Their family is likely to leave the church. But the question is, what is important? My reputation or Christ's honour? It may be for you in your workplace or in your school or amongst your unbelieving friends and family. You know, it's the social issues of our day smear the name of Christ. Marriage equality, one of them. Amongst our young people, the purity of the marriage bed is another major issue. Euthanasia. It's up in the public space right now. Or just the plain people in your, in your sphere taking the Lord's name in vain. Do you take these people aside and explain that is an offence to God? You know, you'll be likely, you'll face ridicule. But whose honour matters? Your honour? Or God's? In the New Testament, we hear really clear instructions about this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, 2 Corinthians 10. And Paul testifies to this marvellous truth, this wonderful truth in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's Christ's grace is sufficient for Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's the heart of David there. That's the heart of any follower of Christ is there. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And as a result, we go back to Psalm 28. The response is amazing. Because as we read the response, verses 6 through 9, we get this wonderful anthem of praise. See, David knew that God was there. David knew that God was answered. Reflect in the very first verse of 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Past tense. He has. He's answered. And then he rolls into just an anthem of praise. And look at these wonderful uh, pictures he uses. The Lord is my strength, my shield, and him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and, I will, and with my song I will give thanks. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and bear them forever. So we have these, these beautiful things. He is our strength. He is our shield. He is our song. He is our salvation. He is our shepherd. That's the God we worship. That's the God we worship. In the psalm, David cried out to the Lord to hear him and to help him in his time of trouble. He was endangered by treacherous men who sought to destroy God's work. Once again, he turned to the Lord, pleading for divine judgment on the ungodly who showed no regard for God's work. As David waited on, on God to act, he was concerned that he shared not in that judgment, but that God would meter out justice. David's strength, his shield, was God. David's shepherd was God, who protects and provides and bears him. It's a beautiful language here, bearing up forever. It's the picture of the shepherd with the sheep across the shoulders. You see, folks, the Lord is sufficient for the believer in every circumstance of life, even the most difficult trials. Let's be like David who had a vital faith and a victorious faith because he knew who his God was. Because Christ has promised that he will sustain us by his grace. When we feel so weak that, that we can advance no further in God's will, the Lord is our everlasting shepherd. He tends us, he carries us, he bears us. He will not turn a deaf ear he will not remain silent because his grace is sufficient in our weakness. A life of faith lives with the anticipation 
that God will answer prayer according to his perfect will. It's the promise of Psalm 28. Now I'm going to give you some time now just for a few moments to pray in your seat. Maybe it's a prayer of thanks. Maybe you say, Lord, I thank you for your strength. I thank you. You're my shield. You're my salvation. You're my song. You're my shepherd. I'll give you a few minutes to do that and then we'll, we'll complete our service. Let's... Um, I'm just going to read these final verses again as our benediction. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I'm helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of the anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever.